So usually before I preach, I say a prayer, and I did not say that prayer. So you guys are going to get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain, so if you bow your heads with me. Father God, what is dark in me, illumine. What is low, raise in support. So that the height of this great argument, I might assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. Lord, what is um, not of you, may it wither and die. What is of you, may it grow and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I am ready to go. I got my Preaching at the Grove uh, starter kit. Got my nice plaid shirt, the skinniest jeans I got, (laughs) and and some brand new kicks. So I'm ready to go. We are continuing on our summer series on gospel wisdom. My assignment is working wisely. The text today is that of a father who is speaking wisdom to a son who will one day inherit the family business. He's laying out two paths. A life lived in wickedness, which is characterized by laziness and shame, or a life lived in righteousness, which is characterized by diligent work and prudence. So whether you fall within the range of a stay-at-home mom or a retiree, my hope is that we're going to dig deep enough into this text that you can find uh, help for your particular situation. So while I'm primarily going to be in the business-related work, Again, my hope is that we dive deep enough in the text for all of us to be able to apply it to our particular circumstance. That's what a proverb does. A proverb gives a little pithy statement and it invites you to apply it to your situation. And so that's what I'm hoping to get out of this today. But there are two quick things I want to uh, go over uh, before we move forward. And it's two ways that you should approach proverbs in your personal reading. The first is that you must have a fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord is the key that unlocks the whole book. A fear of the Lord invites us to have a vision of a life beyond this life and requires of us to look beyond our present circumstances. As Christians, our hope is set in a future beyond this future and a life beyond this life. Life in the Bible is not characterized exclusively as longevity in this world, but is characterized as a relationship with God which lasts through eternity. And so when Jesus goes out and he says, I've come to give life and to give it abundantly, he doesn't just mean this life. If that's the case, then the first Christian martyr, Stephen, obviously missed the memo. What Jesus is talking about is a life beyond this life. When he says, I've come to give life abundantly, it's not just this life, it's in the life to come. When Jesus tells the Pharisees that God is the God of the living and not of the dead, and he says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it shocks them because what he is saying is that in God's presence is not death, it's life. And so you have to have that definition in your mind because if we miss this, we might accuse Solomon of presenting half-truths when in reality he is writing in such a way that keeps attention between this life and the life to come. Just look at verse two. The treasures of the wicked do not profit, but the righteous will be delivered from death. Now, if you didn't have an eye on this life and an eye on the life to come, we could, we could say that this was a half-truth. Do the wicked profit in this life? You can answer. Yeah, we have a whole class of people that call politicians <laughs> that are profiting off wickedness, promising things that they can't deliver. Do the righteous experience death? Absolutely. Is God's word failing us? No. 
Life in the Bible is not just this life, it's the life to come. And unless you have that vision, this text will fail you. You have to have a vision, not only for this life, but for the life to come. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I'll go out on a limb on this, I'll say it. You must have faith in Jesus Christ. You must believe in Jesus in order to grasp the Proverbs. Why? Because the Old Testament does what the Old Testament does best. It begs of us to look for a greater. We have to look for a greater Adam. We have to look for a greater Moses. We have to look for a greater David. And we have to look for a greater Solomon. If you're not looking for Jesus, this text will fail you. Why? Because it fails Solomon. Or rather, Solomon fails it. Solomon falls away from the Lord. He can't follow his own advice. He raises a fool, which is interesting because the majority of Proverbs is a father telling a son how to succeed in life. He raises a fool who can't even hold the kingdom together. He's a tyrant. Within a generation after Solomon dies, his kingdom is divided, never to be brought back together again. Are you going to take advice, somebody, advice from somebody who can't follow their own advice? Angel and I have a dear friend who a couple years ago wrote just an elegant uh, argument for why Christian parents should send their kids to Christian schools. I mean, it was just on point. I mean, I, it was intelligent. It was well-written. She used her kids as an example, and that's where it stopped for Angel and I because we know her kids. The oldest was married at 18, divorced by 22, and is working on his second marriage. The girl has three different kids from three different dads and is divorced. One of the sons, nobody even knows where he's at. He got kicked out of the private school that he was in. I'm not saying you can't learn from other people's failures. And, and obviously, if, 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 if that's kind of your situation, we can learn from that. But it's difficult to take advice from somebody who can't follow their own advice. It's hard to hear. It's difficult to take in. You must look for another, otherwise the text will fail you. And, and if all you're looking for, so all you're coming to the Proverbs is looking for good advice, that will fail you as well. There's an old joke about a man who gets a, a wish from his guardian angel. He gets one wish. He wishes for a newspaper from a year from that date. The angel gives him the newspaper from a year from that date. He's all excited. He's looking at the sports section, seeing who's winning games and what bets he's going to place, looking at the stock market, starts turning pages, gets the obituary and sees his obituary, takes the newspaper and throws it away, doesn't want to look at it. If you don't have an eye on that life, if you only look to this life, and if you're only reading Proverbs to try to get something out of it in this life and not for the life to come, it will fail you. It's not that the word of God fails, hear me. It's that how you approach it will fail. Are we clear on that? All right. But if you have faith, you can read this text, not simply as good advice, but as something which points to life beyond this life that can give you strength, encouragement, help in whatever you may experience on this earth. So remember two things when you're reading Proverbs. Fear of the Lord is, is, is primary, and you have to have faith in Jesus. You have to have an eye on this life and in the life to come. So looking at our text today, this is how we're going to navigate it. We're going to skip verses 2 and 3. We're going to go straight to verse 4. And we're going to look at the difference between a slack hand or a slack palm. 
and the diligent hand. And then we're going to go to verse 5 and look at shame versus prudence. And then finally, we're going to jump back up to verse 2 and verse 3. And we're going to look at the difference between what is a wicked person and what is a righteous person. So let's look at verse 4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Not that I don't like my ESV, but a better translation for a slack hand causes poverty is a poor person is made with a slack palm. And the reason it's a better translation is because it makes it it's an oxymoron. You have somebody who can, who can take none effect, who can fashion nothing, but he can make poverty. So there's a bit, of a, a bit of a joke going on there if you have that translation. And so we're contrasting a slack palm against a diligent hand. And in the Hebrew, the palm is actually from here to the tip of the finger. And so that's a slack palm. And so when you ask your kids, did you clean your room? And they go, eh, I don't know. Nope, I don't know. Nope, I don't know. This does nothing. This is nothing. This is beauty queen. Uh, you know, it's just going like that. It affects nothing. It's weak. It doesn't do anything. It's a lazy bone. It's an image of a lazy bone. While the hand, or the Hebrew word, is yod, and it denotes the appendage from the elbow to the fingertip, and it functions as an image of strength. So we're contrasting the slack palm, which is associated with laziness, or the diligent hand, which is associated with hard work. So how does Proverbs contrast the two? A slack palm person is somebody with the skill, intellect, means, and ability to affect positive change, but is lazy, lazy, negligent, and careless. Not enough care or attention is given to detail to maintain a project or property or business. Though competent, they are lazy. Though capable, they are lethargic. Though qualified, they underperform. The result is more often than not, such a person is left without the means to not only care for themselves, but also to care for their extended family or community. They don't have, they don't take uh, consideration for their needs for food, water, clothing, shelter. And what makes the slack palm even more worse is the assumption in the text that the person has the means, opportunity, and positive social conditions i.e. a family, favorable laws, to not only not become impoverished, and yet through incompetence, neglect, and laziness, the effect is overgrown in weeded fields, dilapidated barns and buildings, malfunctioning equipment or malnourished livestock, rotting crops, disenfranchised employees, over budget and unfinished projects, unmet sales quota, and dissatisfied customers. All the conditions necessary for success but the slack palm can't and won't lay hold of it. There's all the stuff that can make you successful, but there's no internal drive. The diligent hand, however, is antithetical to the slack palm and invokes the idea of someone who is thoughtful, attentive, and persistent. And the idea that a diligent hand produces richness uh, here is contrasted um, so that the, the, the son can hold two extremes in his, in his mind. In the diligent hand, if he works hard, the ground will yield its produce. He has to plant. He has to care for his crops. Uh, he has to fill out his PTS forms. That's a little office joke. Anyways. Um, God has given him all the necessary conditions for success, and through hard work, he lays hold of it. A diligent hand is not only competent, but works hard. Not only capable, but seeks innovation. Not lethargic, but has a posture of wanting to go above and beyond. That it makes him rich does not simply mean a wealth without responsibility. Rather, rich here means that he is able to take the earth that God has made, restructure it so that it produces an abundant crop. The father provides all that he needs. The son must lay hold of it. And so there are two ways 
that are put before the sun, and there are two ways that are put before us when it comes to our work. The slack palm or the diligent worker, poverty or riches. Now again, we have to keep a sharp eye on this life and the life to come. The question we must ask ourselves is this. When it comes to our work, what kind of worker is God calling us to be? Not what kind of worker do we want to be, but what kind of worker is God calling us to be? Here's one of the problems. There's many of us, and probably some of us in here, who don't like our work. But just as a reminder, God is a worker. God could have easily created this earth like that. And yet he takes six days. Or six million years, I guess it depends on, I'm joking, just joking, that's a joke. Oh Lord, it's a joke, okay, it's a joke. Um, no, he could have just snapped his fingers, he could have just spoken, he does speak. But he does it in a way that, that it shows that he has effort, he has work, right? Even if it is the case that you still have, even if it is the case that you don't like your work, you still have these two choices. Slack palm employee or diligent worker faithless, slacked palm, only thinking about this life, or faithful, thinking about this life and the life to come. I went through nine months of premarital counseling with my wife. We needed the nine months. Let's put it that way. And I only remember one question from that. I got permission to say this, by the way. She's right there. He had, the pastor had me look at Angel, my wife, and he said, if this is as good as she'll ever get. He's not my pastor anymore. It wasn't Lance. <laughs> he had me look at her. He said, this is as good as it'll ever get. If it's all downhill from here, do you still want to marry her? Will you still be faithful? If this is as, as good as it's going to get. And of course, I wanted to marry her, so I said yes. Right? So. The cool thing about my wife is that the, the older she gets, the more beautiful she gets. So. Aww. Buzzing. There we go. So, so think of it this way. Yeah, I think so. It's possible. She said, I guess, when he asked. So think of it this way. If work doesn't get any better, will you still try to better your work? If work doesn't get any better, will you still try to better, better your work? Paul will tell slaves that if they can buy their freedom, then do it. If you can change your situation, the Bible will say, go for it. Freedom is essential to Christianity. And you see, somebody would come to Proverbs and read something like this. They may be motivated to work harder, try, try, try. When things don't change, they'll throw this out. But a person of faith, someone who looks to life beyond this life will endure, has the means to endure despite circumstances. A faithful Christian can endure a tyrant. They can work for a tyrant. They can work for a boss who says, go cut the grass and then do it again and leave the grass a little longer. A Christian can do that because a Christian has one foot in this life and one foot in the life to come. And they know that when they serve their tyrant employer, they are serving the Lord ultimately. If work doesn't get any better, will you still try to better your work? That is the posture between a slack palm and a diligent hand. And so let's look at the second thing, uh, shame versus prudence. So look at verse five if you're there. 
He who gathers in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in the harvest is a son who brings shame. Shame denotes either familial shame or public humiliation. You'll see shame often be associated with having a bad reputation or sort of public uh, disgrace as a result of poor behavior and bad planning. In other words, you have a competent worker, an inheritor of the family business, who pays so little attention to his work that he might as well be in a coma. It's not that sleep and rest are bad, rather it's that the sun is sleeping in harvest time, or at a time that would be crucial for the family to continue to live. Work, rest, and worship are intricately tied together. Sleep is extremely important to our dwelling, our well-being, but when it counts, when it matters most, our eyes should be wide open. A son or a worker, in our case, who brings shame is one who is giving no thought to his work or his passions at the crucial time. It's not sleep that brings shame. It's sleeping when you should be working that brings shame. The prudent, however, can anticipate disaster and act accordingly. The best commentary I have on Proverbs says this. This is how it defines a prudent person. The prudent person gives attention to a threatening situation, has insight into its situation, into its solution, acts decisively, and thereby affects success in life and prevents failure and death. A prudent worker will will anticipate something not working right and act quickly and decisively to offer up a solution. They will take calculated risk and seize opportunity. It is to our shame when we know something will happen, we have the means, capability, and intellect to keep it from happening, but refuse to act. Prudence gives no rest to the eyes, finds a way, diverts disaster before it happens. If they mess up, they find a way to make it right. In Luke 16, we're not going to have to turn there, but in Luke 16, you have the parable of the shrewd uh, manager. He mismanages the funds of his master. His master says, I'm going to fire you. The shrewd manager says, I'm too uh, old to work and I'm too prideful to beg. He has a disaster on his hands. And so he, uh, he sets a plan and he figures out a way to square his accounts with the uh, master's uh, debtors. And then he maintains a positive relationship with those debtors. He is commended both by the master and by Jesus for his shrewdness. And even Jesus tells us that the, prudence, uh, the, that the prudent work of the manager is necessary in this life. In that text, Jesus will say that you are supposed to make friends with worldly people. And he is commending his shrewdness for saving his life. And so Jesus is telling us that that is kind of what our posture is. When disaster comes, we need to be on our feet and we need to be thinking quickly. Prudence will anticipate that disaster and have a plan. So you have shame and you have prudence. And really, it's hard to be publicly shamed anymore. Even if something happens on Facebook, you just delete it, right? It's not like the Old Testament where everybody could pass by your field and see that you slept in harvest. It takes drastic and profound steps to get to know people. It takes planning and risk-taking, Some of the most messed up people in our neighborhoods have the most perfectly manicured lawns. You'd never know it if they were one paycheck away from bankruptcy, one bad performance review from termination, or a bad deal from losing everything. There are people in our neighborhoods that are just a disaster waiting to happen. Luke 16, Luke 16, 
is interesting, and this text is interesting, because Jesus tells us to make friends with worldly people, and there are a lot of ways to interpret this, but I think that what Jesus is telling us is that missions at the workplace or in our neighborhoods, neighborhoods cannot happen on a whim. If you want to reach your neighbors, your nations, and your networks, you're going to have to have some shrewd, intentional, prudent planning. That is what Jesus is talking about. I have to confess something. I have no clue how to do missions in the suburbs. The last church we were at, we spent about 20 years. We had transient people. We had drug addicts. We had alcoholics. I'll take drug addicts and alcoholics to house moms any day. How do you minister to a group of people who think that because they're successful at their jobs, because their husbands are successful at their jobs, or because they have money, because everybody in Houston is successful. I haven't met an unsuccessful person yet. Maybe I have, but they didn't tell me they were. They looked like they were successful. I know how to minister to the drug addict who's strung out. Because I can see that. They know it. I can minister to the alcoholic. Alcoholics, they'll be the first people to tell you that they're messed up. They know it. You don't have to beat around the bush on that one. But the suburbs, I, I don't know what to do there, honestly. It's something Angel and I, my wife and I, are praying about. What does shrewd, intentional, prudent planning look like on mission? I think, I have a couple questions. I think one of the things we have to do is you have to ask, either at the workplace or at home or whatever it is, but there's a couple questions. Do you schedule your lunch break so that you'll be alone? Or do you schedule it so that your uh, uh, coworkers are around? Do you take your kids to the park at a time when there aren't a lot of people or when there are? Do you grocery shop in the morning to avoid the crowds or do you go when it's busy? Do you go where people need to hear and see Jesus most or not? One of my favorite stories is John chapter four where Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman you realize in that story that going from Israel, Judah to Israel, you have to pass through Samaria. And what the Jews would do is they would go around Samaria because Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus was intentional about going through Samaria. He goes where the harvest is plentiful. He doesn't lock himself in his Jewish identity. He goes straight to where the people need him most. He's intentional about where he goes and he goes where the harvest is plentiful. Your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, did not sleep in the harvest. Your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was wide awake for the 33 years that he was on this planet. And you are his great harvest. He is calling us to think about, to be prudent in how we go and how we mission. To be around people who typically won't be at a gathering like this. Angel and I were looking at our finances the other day, and we spent a tremendous amount of money on things other than church activities. We do that intentionally. I haven't been to a Christian concert in a long time. We go to different concerts. We go where people that don't know Jesus are. We go through Samaria. Jesus is calling you at work at home in your neighborhoods and your nations to find a Samaria and go through it. Prudent planning, intentional planning, missional planning. Lastly, skipping back up to verses two to three, wickedness versus righteousness. 
Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the, thwarts the craving of the wicked. I want to hone in on these words, wickedness and righteousness. There is a huge but simple difference in the Bible between a wicked person and a righteous person. A wicked person disadvantages others to advantage themselves, while a righteous person will advantage others to advantage themselves. Let me say that again. A wicked person disadvantages others to advantage themselves, while a righteous person will advantage others to disadvantage themselves. The other day, Angel was in line at McDonald's. This McDonald's, you pull up, and you have to give a little bit of space because cars come this way, and you have to pull up here. It's a courtesy that you wait right here while other people are ordering up here. We all get that. You need space for cars to come around. Angel's right here. She's the first one there. She gives that space. A car comes and parks, comes right in front of her and cuts her off at McDonald's. Ugh. And if you know Angel, she practices self-defense, so that was a lot of restraint that she had to have there. <laughs> you don't mess with this girl. That's wicked. That's advantaging yourself over the community, over other people. And lest you think we are so righteous, about eight years ago, we bought our first home. It was the house of my best friend. He's a brother in Christ. He was moving here to Katy. He bought a house in Katy. He has three kids. He bought a house here in Katy. His wife's name is Katy, which I always thought that was funny. So Katy moved to Katy. I don't know what that is. We tell him, we'll buy your house. This is in Corpus. We'll buy your house in Corpus. We always love their house. If they ever sold it, we said, we buy it. He said, no, no, no. Save your money. Go find a better house. We said, no, we love it. He said, no, let me try to sell it. He puts it on the, he's got, he's got two mortgages. He puts it on the market in September. It gets five showings, no offers. October comes, no showings, no offers. November, no showings, no offers. We're driving back from Thanksgiving. He gives me a call. He says, I'm desperate. Will you buy my house? Sure. I'll buy it for what you owe, not for what you're asking for. He said, okay, I need it. Now I ask you, righteous or wicked? Utterly wicked. Better men would have put me under church discipline. Not better men than Lance, better men in that church. Had I been able to, had I had this definition before I did that, I would have paid full price for that house. What does that matter? A little bit of profit to pardon me, screw over my best friend and his family. I learned this definition about four years ago. It didn't really kick in until a year when I was thinking about that transaction. I have since repented to my friend. And Angel and I have promised to give him a portion of the proceeds if we ever sell the house. To disadvantage my best friend for a little bit of profit is wicked. I would invite you to consider your own life and to consider whether your business transaction, your home transactions, are disadvantaging others to advantage yourself, which is wicked, or advantaging others and disadvantaging yourself. That is a faithful servant of Jesus. To advantage others even to your own hurt. 
The wicked will try and store up the advantages of a good life for themselves over and against their community and even to the hurt of their circle of influence. In attempting to store up life for themselves through unjust means, they lose out on the profit of a life lived in service to God, which ultimately, ultimately means eternal life. That is why in this verse, the righteous will be delivered from death. It's not clinical death only. It is eternal death. It is delivered from death that separates us from God on an infinite level. Wicked people may profit long in this life, but will lose out on the life to come. When we do what is right in order to advantage others, that is a righteous worker. When we do what is wrong in order to advantage ourselves, we are wicked. Utterly wicked. The reason the righteous do not go hungry is again because God provides an everlasting sustenance. Righteousness sustains a life beyond this life. This is why Jesus, in that same text in John chapter 4, he can say, when the th disciples come and, 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 you know, are you hungry and thirsty? He says, I have my food here. The harvest is plentiful. Because he has a righteousness that sustains not just this life, but their life to come. Whereas God will, will confuse the cravings of the wicked. The idea here, the idea here is that it does not last. It cannot satisfy. It may be satisfied in this life, but it can't sustain a life beyond this life. Psalm 15 you don't have to go there again. But it says, who shall dwell on your holy hill? In other words, who will stand in the presence of God and enjoy his goodness? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks truth, does not slander, does not do evil to his neighbor, neighbor takes up no reproach, or doesn't sue his neighbor and complain about every little thing. Evil is despised, the fear of the Lord is honored. He swears to his own hurt. It would be beneficial for all of us in here to commit to memory Psalm 15. He swears to his own hurt. A righteous person will do what they say they will do even to their own hurt. They lend money at no interest. Now, this is interesting. Lending money at no interest, it does not refer to banking or financing. Our early church fathers misinterpreted the prohibition against charging interest in ancient Israel. It refers to charging interest on someone in order to indenture them to you. It's selling something or loaning something to somebody that basically makes them your servant. So if you're working in banking or financing, it's not that interest on a home and not that interest on a loan or anything like that is evil. It's when you make a loan to somebody knowing they can't afford it and enslaving them to that institution that is what the Bible prohibits interest in. Knowingly charging something beyond its price. I worked in sales for a long time. And I can't tell you how many times I was pressured to sell something that my client didn't need. It happens all the time. You have to push back against something like that. You just have to. You say, well, if I do that, I'll lose my job. You don't understand, the world has different standards. If I do that, I'll lose my job. If I do that, my career's toast. So be it. So be it. What is your career compared to eternity with God? Honestly, I'm not joking. I've committed to this. I have told my boss, no. It is wrong. Fire me. 
He keeps me around. Because he knows I'm going to do what is right. I had an employee orientation the other day with some of my new agents. I'm managing a project. I told them, I will go to the mat for you. If you mess up, fine. Come and tell me. We, I will take a, a chewing. But if you lie to me, you're done. I don't care that you mess up. I care that you do what is right. Because that's what I'm going to do. To do what is right, even to your own hurt. To lose your career for Christ. Angel and I were talking about this. Um, she does some work for a blog. And that blog is just going off the rails. She's like, and, and Angel is, Angel's a Christian. She says, well, what if they fire me? What if they ridicule me? What if they humiliate me? What if they, whatever. So be it. She will do what is right. So be it. You have to have that in your mind. What does it profit to gain the whole world but to lose your soul? Do what is right. Advantaging others to disadvantage yourself. That is a righteous person. That is a person who the end of Psalm 15 says shall never be moved. You can't do anything to a person who does that. Who says, do your worst. I'm going to do what's right. And I guarantee you, there are employers out there, there are businesses out there that will honor people who do that. My boss does. I tell them, I'm not going to do that all the time. Keeps giving me work. <laughs> Conclusion. We can't live that type of life or be that type of worker unless we are in Christ Jesus. For those of you here this morning who believe, we have Jesus Christ as our example. Go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll read that one. My son took my spot out. I have to go find it. I knew when I gave him my Bible that I was going to regret it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 through 8. Christ, our example. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let not only each of you Advantage themselves to disadvantage others. But disadvantage yourself to advantage others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Nothing. Taking the form of a servant, it's probably a better translation, slave. We're not allowed to say slave in our day, but it's 
probably a better translation. Can you imagine that? The Lord of heaven and earth takes the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men, that right there is a step down for God. Let me just tell you. That's humiliating for a God to be in the likeness of a man. When you read that, you should see that. We're so used to it. That's humiliating for Christ. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He exemplifies diligent, prudent, righteous work. If you are not a Christian here this morning, consider how Christ has worked for you on our behalf. I would urge you to stop thinking about this life only, but the life beyond this life, because here is our Jesus. He worked on our behalf to secure a heavenly inheritance and to give us an abundant life before God. That diligent effort saved us. His diligent work seated at the right hand of God now secures us And we look forward to the finished work, a promise of rest and relationship in eternity. Before Pilate and on Calvary, the prudent and eternal planning of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to secure for his chosen people a rescue from our sins showcases God's ultimate prudence. Seeing the disaster of our sin and the inevitable devastation it could bring, he immediately instituted a plan of action to hedge off the effects and secure for us a rescue and restoration effort on a cosmic scale an impeccable risk, trading his home and security, his life for hostility and hardship. He went where people needed him most. Though Jesus was shamed and mocked in such a way that no other human being endured, the Father's words, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, echoes across Calvary. You get that? That was the ultimate way to go, public humiliation. The father was not ashamed of the son on the cross. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Though shamed by the world's standards, Calvary looked like a failure. Jesus Christ despised the shame, but for the joy that was set before him, that's us. And on the cross, Jesus showcased the ultimate righteousness, disadvantaging himself to advantage us disadvantaging himself. We are pardoned from our sin, brought into the presence of God, and are declared righteous before his holy throne through the righteous works of Christ and Christ alone. Having no need of us, he wanted us. And wanting us, he died for us. And dying for us, he provides a life beyond this life, something that you can only expect a greater than Solomon to give us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you for the diligent, the prudent, the righteous work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he did not sleep in the harvest. We thank you, Lord, that he came so that we might live and not just live this life, but live the life to come. We thank you that he disadvantaged himself in order to advantage us. Lord, we ask that we would have that same posture towards our neighborhoods,
towards our networks. We pray, Lord, that we would look for opportunity to disadvantage ourselves in our workplace, at home, the park. I pray, Lord, that we would be diligent workers, that we would work as unto the Lord, that we would not be slack-palmed, that we'd be a blessing to our employers and to our employees. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.